Friends, where you're seated, let me pray. May God's word be spoken, God's word be heard, and God's word be lived. Amen. Well, good morning again. Welcome to St. Paul's. We're so glad you're with us. Those of you in person, those of you joining us online, whether you're curious, critical, or committed, you're welcome here at St. Paul's. Okay, I know it's still uh, early on a Sunday morning, but you've all had an extra hour of sleep, uh, so we're going to start with a little bit of mental math. If you're currently employed, I want you to calculate in your head you or your partner's annual gross salary and benefits, okay? Or what your salary was, or if you're receiving an educational grant or a pension. Have that number in your head. Now, here's the mental math, add three months more of that income, okay? There's only 260 work days in a year, and I want us to come up with a number roughly equivalent to 300 days of work. Got that figure in your head? This is approximately how much that alabaster jar of ointment was worth, a year's wages that an unnamed woman lavished over the feet of Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. That was how much Jesus was worth to this woman. This was a display of love to Jesus that went way beyond generous or startling. It even went beyond extravagant. It went into the realm of embarrassing. We're on week three of our preaching series looking at a rhythm of life, five ancient spiritual habits that have sustained followers of Jesus for centuries, which can be extraordinarily life-giving for us here in downtown Toronto. Karen kicked us off looking at the rhythm of public worship, what we're doing right now. And then Tyler last week looked at how a rhythm of prayer and study can actually rewire our brains, enabling us to enjoy God. And today we come to the third rhythm, service, pouring ourselves out for people in the church and wider community. Now, North American culture is relentlessly self-focused right now. Charitable giving continues to decline in Canada. Social media algorithms push us into echo chambers of like-minded thinking and narcissism. And increasing percentages of our income, apparently, are spent on beauty products, both for men and women. All breeding a lack of social cohesion and loneliness not seen in other cultures. And an aching lack of fulfillment that our jobs and relationships, no matter how good, can never seem to satisfy. Service. Pouring ourselves out for other people both in the church and the wider community. Out of the five spiritual rhythms we're working our way through, my sense is this is the easiest one for us to get on board with intellectually, but one of the hardest to actually implement in our daily lives. Jobs, kids, dating, they take up so much time. A few weeks ago, I said that the goal should be a centered, not a balanced life a life centered on Jesus. Because the person we most want to be like, whether we're 21 or 81, it's Jesus. And this morning we heard an account recorded by a physician, a man named Luke, 
about a woman with a reputation whose life had become increasingly centered on Jesus, and she literally poured herself out for other people. Last week, Tyler said he wanted us to enjoy God. And that's one side of the coin of a satisfying life, says Jesus. Loving God, enjoying God. The other side of the coin is loving our neighbors, pouring ourselves out for them in lives of service. What had this woman experienced? How might it shape us for lives of service? A little bit of background. Uh, because this woman is named as a sinner in Luke's account, throughout history, commentators have assumed that she was a sex worker or a woman caught in adultery, as if the only sin possible for a woman is the transgression of society's sexual norms. But the text actually implies no such thing. In the Jewish context that this interaction took place, anybody who was not being, anybody could be called a sinner who was not being faithful to the Torah, God's law, an assessment that could be made about every single one of us. And the setting is a home, uh, the home of Simon the Pharisee, who was a religious leader, and he's decided to invite Jesus to dinner, which suggests that he found Jesus at least a little bit intriguing. And observing this woman slip into the dining room, Simon clearly has some ideas about how Jesus should behave towards her. Jesus promptly fails Simon's prophet test by letting this woman touch him, which generates a delicious little irony for us, the hearers, who understand that Jesus has just read Simon's mind. The woman interrupts the dinner party bringing with her a jar of ointment, which the Gospel of John tells us would have been worth roughly a year's wages. That number you've got in your head. And it's conceivable that this ointment was either left over from a previous family burial, or as some commentators think, was actually a precious family heirloom. And through her tears, she then begins to bathe his feet with the expensive ointment. It was embarrassing. And you can almost hear the cringing in the room as she made this completely over-the-top gesture with this expensive ointment. Extravagant love and service embarrasses us. And it'll often produce logical confusion. Like, that doesn't make sense. We have friends, Tim and Lori, who have two boys. Their oldest son, Joshua, has a serious congenital heart defect and about 14 years ago was going in at the age of one for his second open heart surgery. I remember one evening at bedtime, our girls began talking about which of their baby toys they would give him while he was in the hospital. How sweet they are, I thought. What a clearly wonderful mother I've been. This teddy bear, that squeezy thing, then our youngest, Charlotte, who would have been about two, piped up. I give baby Joshua my blankie. Charlotte's blankie was her absolute prized possession. Tears were wiped on it, cuddles received in it, and sleep was impossible without it. Oh no, I thought. If she gives him her blankie, it'll be a disaster at bedtime. I won't get a moment's peace. I found myself trying to encourage her. I actually did this to give him a different present instead. It just logically made no sense. Any toy, but not the blankie. 
I'd be the one who would suffer. What was I doing? Here I was trying to squelch my daughter's very first act of extravagant love, of embarrassing service, of pouring herself out for someone else. Did this woman realize what she was doing with this embarrassingly lavish service? Everyone else who came to Jesus or invited him to dinner knew what they wanted. They asked for it. Sight for blind eyes, healing for a sick child, stimulating conversation at a well-appointed dinner table. But this woman, she asked for nothing. She got nothing to gain from this lavish display. Whether she knew or intended the full significance of what she'd done with the ointment, we don't know. But Jesus did, and he uses this as a teachable moment for the surrounding men about who he is and the purpose of life. You see, the woman anointed her uh, Jesus' feet, and other records of this encounter say that she also anointed his head. And in this culture, you only anointed the heads of kings. And the only time you got your feet anointed was when you were dead. They all knew it. Whether she realized it or not, the woman, she was the prophet in the room, anointing the king of the world who was about to die. Do you see this woman? said Jesus, clearly implying that they had not clearly seen. Turning to Simon, Jesus said, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven, forgives, loves little. This woman, says Jesus, she's given me the lavish love and service you failed to give me, an observation which wins Jesus no fans. Who is this who says he forgives sins? Who indeed? What has this woman experienced to motivate her to such an act of lavish service and how might it shape us well this woman experienced a man who loves even more extravagantly than she did there's nothing frugal or logical about god's love god loves each of us so much that god would do whatever it takes to draw us back into relationship with god this woman had her sins i have mine Many of them known, some of you hurt by them. You've got yours. And the consequences for all of us are serious. If you've got a temper or have strained relationships, if you care about COP27 or striking education workers or the inclusion of the marginalized in the church or you've been on the wrong end of office gossip or war, for God's sake, the great evil we lament on Remembrance Sunday, then like the woman you know, you know. But not only do our sins tear and destroy, they build up a barrier between us and God, and that's a terrible thing. It's as if you had a fight with your spouse, theoretically. And you go to bed angry with each other, theoretically. You might be sleeping in the same bed, but there is a wall of ice in that bed, and it does not get melted until the next morning when he apologizes. 
Whatever it takes, says God. Whatever price of extravagant love and service to deal with the problem, I'll do it. My son, he's going to serve. My son, he's going to submit to an embarrassing death on a cross, anointed by an unnamed woman in an act of embarrassing extravagance. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. This is what this woman experienced, forgiveness. This is what shapes a life of service. Jesus seems to make a startling link between our awareness of our need for forgiveness and the degree to which we will pour ourselves out for the life of other people. It seems to be that forgiveness is the engine for service. So you see, the more our lives get centered on Jesus, which is the purpose of these five uh, ancient spiritual habits, the rhythm of life, what happens is the more we do that on one hand, we grow in our hunger for forgiveness, which then humbles us. But then on the other hand, we have that hunger instantly satisfied by Jesus. And therefore, we're fueled to serve other people. Dorothy Day is an American journalist. She was an anarchist and a Roman Catholic. And she said something I find really challenging. I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. That amount of your yearly wages poured out for the person you love least in the world. Oof. On numerous occasions, Jesus identified himself with the poor and the outcast, the least loved in society, telling us, when you feed the poor, when you shelter the refugee, you are serving me. And becoming increasingly aware of our need for forgiveness, it seems to be the engine that will enable us to serve the poor and the outcast, those whom society and ourselves often love the least. One of life's great tragedies is that so many of us, myself included, can go through our lives with our alabaster jars of service never broken and infrequently poured out. And one of the reasons Remembrance Day strikes such a chord while we grieve the horrors of war is because being willing to lay down your life is such a visceral act of service. This woman's jar may have been a family heirloom, yet she did not hesitate to pour it out in service to Jesus. Some families even hand down their containers of abundance from generation to generation in stocks and banks. And we can easily fall into patterns of prudence and caution when it comes to serving our neighbors and yet Jesus is not looking for cautious or even logical people to be his followers. If you're spiritually searching this morning, I need to tell you that Jesus is looking for people who are willing to live lives of sometimes embarrassing service. Love for God, love for other people. Lives that do not always make sense. They're often not prudent. Uh, lives with rhythms that are fueled by forgiveness, that break open our family traditions and heirlooms. They, they raise eyebrows. They, they take risks. God extravagantly loves sinners and is looking for followers who are up for more of the same. If you're already a disciple, 
I'd invite you to think about a simple change to your life that would open up time to love Jesus and serve others, both within the family of faith here at St. Paul's, but also in the wider community that God loves. What's one activity you could give up or drop from your child's schedule so you could serve others more? Start small, aim big. There's a QR code in the glass atrium for how you can serve in the life of the family of faith. It takes almost 100 people on a Sunday to run our children and youth program, welcome people, lead our music, get involved. Start a connect group, drive for our shelter meals program, help at Alpha or a divorce care course. All things that are impacting other people here in the heart of the city. The one to whom little is forgiven loves little. We've all been forgiven so much. So let's embrace a daily and weekly rhythm that gets us our reputation for embarrassing service. Thanks be to God. Amen.